Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. Well, as usual, I'm making this up as I go along, so uh, those of you who have known me a long time know that that's true. I don't want you to get freaked out. Some of you are visitors. This is not an ecumenical service that everything to this point was Lutheran. And now we've got the Buddhist thing with some fruit and grain offerings going on on the altar, okay? Uh, kids' lessons are effective for kids. There's a reason you take an object and teach a kid. They're also effective for adults. I used to, back when I was in the parish, I would have people tell me all the time, they meant it as a compliment, but it was kind of one of those backhanded compliments. Uh, Pastor, your sermon was okay, but I really got a lot out of the kids' lessons. So I thought, all right, we're going to do a, an adult lesson at, at a kid's level today. Uh, to follow along here, as Tim alluded to, we're looking at uh, the second lesson, or actually the first lesson from 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at especially the last four verses, verses 14 through 17. So that's on page 8 in your folder. I don't know if it's going to be up there. It doesn't need to be up there. You all have a folder you can follow there. <clears throat> Let's start this way. Uh, and those of you who are old, aging hippies, I hesitate to do this, because if I do it, the rest of the sermon, you're checking out. You're just going to say these words over to you and start humming the tune. Something happening here, what it is ain't exactly clear. Okay, candy for you, can you name the song? A lot of people don't know the name. It's actually not something happening here. It's actually called For What It's Worth. Can you name the group? Don't say Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. This is before Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Buffalo, Buffalo Springfield. All right, hard one. Candy. <laughs> <laughs> the year. And I was wrong. I was thinking to myself, 67. Ah, the most significant year, 69, but it wasn't. 66. 66. Nobody gets candy. Here's why it was significant. Right or wrong, those uh, baby hippies, they saw what was going on and what was coming. Uh, they had seen a little bit of racial tension in L.A., where they were based, and they were talking about it. Vietnam had not quite escalated to the point that it eventually would escalate. It, it kind of maxed out in 69 and 70. And those of you who were around back then, you remember what was going on in the streets, right? There was tensions. Uh, I lived 100 miles north of Detroit. So that was 1966, 67, 68, 150, at least 150 people died due to the race riots and the ensuing violence in, in the streets. Uh, Kent State had not happened yet in 66, but it was on the horizon. It was going to happen. And you know what it was like, the tension and the confusion and the craziness. We, we talk nowadays about upheaval and culture. I don't know if we've reached the point of what we lived through in the 60s. When, when I was a kid and what we saw going on in our streets. I borrow that phrase to apply to Carbon Valley. Something happening here, what it is ain't exactly clear. And for more or less, 
that's why Tim asked me to talk today. What I do as a pastor nowadays is not serve a local congregation, but I help churches get started, including this one way back. And I help churches adjust themselves, and sometimes I help churches close down. In a lot of this, I analyze churches, I analyze communities. I'm what's sometimes called a church consultant, only that's not my title. My specialty would be called ecclesiology, which is a fancy word that basically means the science of the church. And so I'm going to talk to you about what's happening here, and, but it may not be exactly clear. It's got nothing to do with race riots. It's got nothing to do with protesting a war or politics or anything like that. It's more important than that. And by the way, it's got nothing to do with this being a new building. Cool as this is, and as wonderfully as this turned out, and as much as sweat equity went into this, and tears, and, and a lot of labor, this is more important than the building. It's talking about what we have here, and this is where the fruit thing comes in. Probably the best-known ecclesiologist of the 20th century and into the early 21st century is a man by the name of Lyle Schaller. He died a few years back at the age of 93. He is revered in the evangelical world. Evangelical think in terms of Baptist, non-denominational, and a lot of them never knew, never realized. Lyle Schaller was actually a Lutheran. Lyle Schaller, at some point in his profession, no longer a parish pastor, but an early ecclesiologist who consulted with churches and tried to help churches, said that what happens sometimes in the early history of a congregation is a lot like cherries that are mixed together in a bowl. I don't know why he thought in these ways. He maybe had a bowl of cherries in front of him and said there's some old cherries in there and there's some new cherries. But he went on to write extensively about the, the, the real important thing to do as a congregation is to recognize some of those cherries and some of those cherries are new, some old, and they mix together. Neither is more valuable. They're just different in their perspective. Later on, he started saying it's more like berries. So I, I, that's why I brought this along. So think of Carbon Valley as some strawberries, all right? These were the folks who were around in 2014, 2015. My wife and I were two of those. There's a few of us, other fossils. A few of you were here. They were here seven years ago when this got going, right? And, and then there was the wave of people, the initial wave that said something's happening there. Uh, they've started to meet over at this school. Uh, Let's go try them out. So, so think of that as the second wave or the second deposit of berries. And then there's a lot of people, Tim tells me, that it's just been in the last six months or so that, that you've come around here and that you're checking it out and so far so good and it kind of appeals. You're the third wave. Now what happens, Schaller was saying, and, and I would fully agree, that's a beautiful thing to have mixed berries. But if you start shaking them around and just assume you don't have to do anything about it to acknowledge the differences in their perspective, uh, you, you're going to have a mess. You're going to end up with instant fruit milkshake, and, and nobody wants to eat that. It's probably going to be brown, right, if you put this in a blender. That's not going to be all that appealing. But acknowledge that they're there, and they have differences in perspective because of the differences in time in which they came in to the congregation. This is true of every new Protestant congregation. It normally happens around years 10 through 12. Carbon Valley is an anomaly in that this has happened to us, and we've only been worshiping since 2015. So we're in our sixth year, seventh year coming up. This happened to us earlier. It's not bad. 
It's not saying people come from different ethnic backgrounds or racial backgrounds or spiritual backgrounds or they're men or women or young or old, and we've got to address that. It's saying that we come together and we might have slightly different views of what's happening here. Uh, as a, an example of how your view may differ, <clears throat> some of us sat around, I say us, I'm not, I wasn't there. I've been this church's worst delinquent since day one. But some of you sat around with Tim and Jamie in their living room, went through a book and said, what's going to be our approach as a new church? How, how are we going to let music play out? What will our schedule look like? What will we stress? You discuss the philosophy of the ministry and said, well, Sunday mornings, let's go with this church in a box thing. What is that? I don't know, you get a horse trailer, you get a bunch of storage cabinets we got over there. What do we own, eight of those and all? Uh, we, and, and a bunch of equipment, you put it in the horse trailer, you, you load it up. Every Sunday you unpack it, set it up in the school, and every Sunday you take it down. Some of you have done that for a long time now. You can blame the old guys, the strawberries. Their idea, they thought, yeah, that would be a cool thing to try. Some of you came around in year one or two, and where you first jumped in and participating in the church was you got involved. You became part of the roadies. You're setting up and taking down every week. And then some of you would say, what's church in the box? We just came around here, maybe found you guys when you were over at the Methodist church a few months back, maybe found you online, Maybe we're in an outdoor service, maybe indoor when, you had, when the weather was bad. We're just been trying to find you and nail you down. What are you going to be? Where are you going to be? We hear rumors of eventually moving into this building, but we're not sure, and we sure don't know what church in the box is. Different people came at different times, have different perspectives on things. And it's really important at, at a juncture like this, when you move into a new building, that's a significant thing. Do not stress the differences of the berries, but the commonality of the berries. And why are we here in the first place? And what is it, whether we're a strawberry, a blackberry, or a raspberry, why, why is it that we are here? What do, what do we value? Tim wanted to do a series of sermons, and you got that on the front cover. You get beyond the picture and see that, the two words purpose built? That's a series of sermons beginning today. What are we built upon? And this is the lead-off one. It's meant to be the shortest sermon, which I don't know if it's going to be, but it's meant to be that way. It's also meant to be the foundation for everything else that's going to follow in the subsequent weeks. We are purpose built on Scripture. And you might say, duh. But I cannot stress how important that is to remember that and affirm it once again in this juncture as a congregation, no matter how long you've been here, seven years or seven weeks. We are built on Scripture. Verses 14 and 15. St. Paul writing to a young man by the name of Timothy, perhaps 20, 25, 30 years old. As for you, continue in what you've learned and what you've become convinced of because you know those from you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Recall the circumstances. St. Paul wrote a total of 11, possibly 12 letters that, that are included in our New Testament. This we know was the last one. He'd been in prison before, and he'd written a lot of letters from there, but uh, this time it's for real. He's in prison. Uh, he's going to be executed. 
It's in Rome. It's a dungeon. It's not good. He knows he's got a death sentence. This is his last will and testament, not only to a young man who, who likely would have been something comparable to what we would call an elder in the church or a student minister in charge of the church at Ephesus. He, he writes to that young guy, and he must have had a tight relationship with him, and he said, you hang on to what you learned from your mom and your grandma and, and from me. But it was written not only to that young man, it was written to us in subsequent generations too. This encouragement inspired by God to hang on to the scriptures which you have always known. What would that have meant in Timothy's case? This 25-year-old guy, let's keep him at 25, as a young leader, but a significant leader at the church at Ephesus, which was a significant church in the early New Testament church. What would that have meant? Hang on to those books. Well, he didn't have them in book form. And he didn't have the Bible on his phone like we do nowadays. He would have had scrolls. But it would have included everything that you and I call the Old Testament. Timothy's familiar with the Old Testament. And it wouldn't have included Matthew, Mark, and Luke for sure. Maybe not the Gospel of John is published yet. The book of Acts, he's living the book of Acts. He doesn't have to read about it. Romans was written. Most of Paul's other letters are, read, are written and extant in the New Testament church. So most of the New Testament is what St. Paul's referring to when he says, you hang on to the Bible and follow it and grow in it. Not just the words, but basically the ideas. Both Old Testament and New Testament. That's what Paul's encouraging. You, you take the principles, the truths, the ideas, in Old Testament, New Testament, hang on to it. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm not going to go through every book of the Bible and say, how did Timothy read that? I think a good book of the Bible to sum up both Old Testament and New Testament is Hebrews. I think I said that a few weeks ago when I preached here. I think I preached on Hebrews. Probably did. Because I love the book. It sums up the entire Old Testament and the New Testament very succinctly and very clearly. And so let's use that as example. What were the ideas that Timothy was encouraged to hang on to as a young pastor when his mentor, Paul, is going to be dead and in heaven? Let's go to Hebrews 4, where we find this. The Word of God is living and active. It's like a double-edged sword. It pierces the heart to reveal every idea and thought. Isn't that scary? That God's word and God's mind can do that? Things that we think we can hide from him? It, it isn't so. Or even scarier, 10th chapter. And there'll be good news later on in the 10th chapter of Hebrew, but for right now, here's one of the more scary passages in the whole Bible. If we deliberately keep on sinning, there is no sacrifice of sins left. To say to God something that you call sinful, but that I rationalize or justify for whatever way, shape, or form, God is saying quite clearly through an inspired author, that's damnable. That's got eternal consequences. St. Paul is reminding young Pastor Timothy and an audience today, it is good to go to church once in a while and get terrified. What we call the law. Mark Twain said that. If you won't listen to me, listen to Mark Twain, a pretty sharp guy. Read the Bible. Don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he knew the Bible. And he's on record as saying, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that scare me. 
It's the parts that I do understand that terrify me. So no more of this Mickey Mouse stuff from the 80s and 90s church growth movement. We just go to church to get a good vibe. It's good to go to church and get terrified. The flip side, also from the book of Hebrews, both Old Testament and New Testament summarized ideas. It is good to get comforted week after week. Again, from chapter 4, we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Boy, that's good news. And the rest of the New Testament expands upon that. Jesus not only lived perfectly and accounted for his own account with God, the Bible says that Jesus' perfection gets counted to each and every one of us. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And therefore, all the words that came out of your mouth and all the thoughts you ever had, they're good because Jesus lived it for you. And on top of that, from Hebrews chapter 10, remember I saw it said in that terrifying chapter, there's also good news. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And it's a present gerund in Greek. It says, you are holy. Not that you will become holy at some point when you get to heaven. In God's eyes, you are holy right now. Which is the real reason we go to church. Yeah, we need to be terrified and reminded. But boy, do we need to hear it's forgiven. And we are comforted. And we rejoice. And at this point, you might say, why would Carbon Valley have to go through that and repeat those things and affirm these things? That we're just another Protestant church and all Protestant churches look that way and talk that way. And I would tell you factually, without getting into denominational bashing, that simply is not true. I used to know it conceptually when I was at one church in one place. I travel the country, I interact with a lot of denominations and a lot of local churches and a lot of pastors, and we have conversations, and I talk with their leaders, and I can tell you factually, it is rare in the United States to find a church that actually is built solidly on Scripture and handles it correctly. It's just rare. It is, because it's hard. It's much easier to do as many of the large so-called megachurches do and say, we're a New Testament church. Forget about the two-thirds of the Bible in the front. They simply don't touch on the Old Testament unless they want to talk about leadership or mandatory tithing. Right? Smaller Protestant churches take the entire Old Testament, New Testament, manufacture rules out of good news and say, follow the rules, and then you're a good Christian. And if you don't follow them right, well, then you're probably not a Christian. You take the gospel and make a rule out of it, an act of obedience. And still other churches, including Lutherans, the so-called mainline churches, which is a phrase that comes from Broadway Street, Broad Street in Philadelphia, where all the big churches, all the denominations of the Protestants are lined up. I've seen it, been there. There's, there's the Presbyterian, there's several varieties of Lutheran churches, there's the Baptist, there's the Congregational, there's the Methodist, there's huge churches there. And they're right on the main line of the old streetcar there, so they're called the mainline churches. Many of the mainline churches have simply capitulated. And they have said, it's an inconvenient or an unplanned pregnancy. God would understand if we choose to abort. That's our teaching in this church. God would understand. It's just the way I'm wired, God. I know there's passages that allude in the first century to that being adultery to have premarital sex. 
or sex outside of marriage or sex with a person of the same gender. I know that that's what Scripture says, but it's outdated thinking, and we know better nowadays. It's a rare thing to have a church that says, we'll live on the authority of Scripture, and we're going to follow it accurately. And forget about everybody else that I just alluded to, every other church that's out there. What's important for CVL at this point is that we individually and collectively affirm, this is the way we're going to roll. This is where we stand. This is how we're purposely built. What is it, six families you got standing up here before, later on? In effect, that's what you're doing. I don't know if you thought about it in those terms, but you're going to stand up there and say, we've been around, we've heard, you've taught us what you teach, it appeals to us, we affirm it by standing in front of God and everybody else and saying, we're in. And I don't know if you think about Sunday morning this way, and I hope you come every Sunday morning, and I hope you're mindful of it every week, that when you stand, and when you sing, and when you listen, and when you respond by speaking a creed, you are affirming this basic, simple truth. We find here a place where the Word of God is handled correctly and taught correctly, and we affirm that. Last couple of verses, verses 16 to 17, said it's one thing to affirm it, but you're also going to need to live it. If you think these words are true, then Paul's telling Timothy, live it. All Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Two simple principles in there. The first of which strikes at the heart of this idea that I can simply do the Christian walk on my own. Yes, Timothy likely had a devotional life, but, but the gerunds that you find piled up in verse 16 there assume collective learning. You don't simply teach yourself and rebuke. How do you rebuke yourself? Well, I kind of do that sometimes, but rebuking is normally with another human being. Correct and train. Those assume that there will be collective gatherings to look at the scriptures and affirm and equip ourselves. The second principle that's there, well equipped for every good work, when we have read these things and when we've affirmed them and when we listened to them and pondered them, this enables us to be Christ followers. And primarily we're going to do that collectively. Again, examples of where it would be highly, highly beneficial to gather around with a group of people, be that a small group of five in a home or a larger Bible class of 20 here on some evening, and, and to just look at a section of Scripture and learn from it and share reflections and ideas and, and experiences on the basis of that Scripture. That's what Paul is trying to teach 20 centuries ago to young Pastor Timothy. Have some collective Bible study. Most this past week, I was holed up in a motel room on the east side of Long Island. You might think, oh, what a horrible place to be. It's actually, there's nice neighborhoods. It looks like central Wisconsin when you get off the main LIE, the Long Island Expressway, and a half mile off, you're in small town village of Wisconsin there. So don't say, oh, what a terrible place to be in New York. And we got a church going there, and I was trying to help this church on a Tuesday morning. I'm doing what I wish I did more regularly, but I, I sometimes miss too. I'm doing my private devotional reading, and I happen to be in the book of Genesis, Old Testament. I'm in the New Testament. I'm over in Romans. Here's the two chapters that popped up that day. 
Genesis 21, Romans 16. And I'm thinking to myself as I read these things, my goodness, it would be cool to hang out with some people and just talk about what I just read and how that applied to us. Genesis 21 never shows up in Sunday school curriculum. I guarantee you, Carbon Kids will never study Genesis 21. Because what goes on in there? Abraham commits a mistake that he committed previously about 20 years ago when he was only 75. Now he's in his mid-90s, and he commits the same mistake. He's a nomad. He's got herds and flocks. God had promised him, Abraham, you're the one I pick. I'm going to give you riches, I'm going to give you land, and from your people will come the Messiah. That's my promises. Abraham acted on those promises, packed up, moved 800 miles, began to wander in what we would call Israel today. He's now moved to the part called Southwest Israel, Canaan, Beersheba specifically. And the warlord who exerts power in that area is a man by the name of Abimelech. They didn't have kings necessarily, they had warlords. Kind of like you find in Afghanistan today. Abraham cuts a deal. I know I'm moving in with my 300 and 400 hired hands and servants. And I know you're the warlord. Here's the deal. I'm not paying you. I'll do something better. I'll give you my wife. And he tells a half-truth. She's my sister. Make her part of your harem. Apparently still an appealing woman. She would have at this point been in her mid-80s. But Abimelech says, I'll take that deal. And, and this is a chief lady in my harem now. But it probably included many other women. That's the way you showed wealth and power back in the day. You had a large harem. And that's the deal. And Abraham had done this previously, and God told him that's nasty. And why is that so significant? Abraham is the model held up in both Old Testament and New Testament of what it means to trust God. If there's one guy who got it, it would be Abraham. And you want to be known as a son or daughter of Abraham. And yet here's this guy acting like a dirtbag. Take my wife as part of a financial deal. I know God said it was wrong 20 years ago, but I'm doing it again to cover my own hide. This time God intervenes by going to Abimelech in a dream and he said, your household is being cursed, as you've noticed, because that's Abraham's wife, not sister. And until you rectify this situation, Abimelech, it's going to be a mess for you. And the only reason that I haven't nuked your entire household, Abimelech, is because you haven't touched her yet. I've kept you from sinning. That's in there. Keep that idea. A giant of faith sins. The victim of this devious plan, Abimelech, a king, God says to him directly, I've kept you from sinning. That's the Genesis 21. The Romans 16 thing that I read a little later, that's the last chapter in Romans. Brilliant chapter of doctrine, profoundly hard in some places. Yet Paul closes it down in a very personal way, writing from prison the first time, knows a lot of people who are now in Rome, and he's writing to them to clarify doctrines, but he says, I greet you and you and you and you, and I pray for you and I bless you. And he names them by name, and he says when he gets to Rufus, Rufus, I think of you and I think of your mother, who was like a mother to me. And the connotation there is not that she took care of his physical needs, but that she helped with Paul's spiritual needs. Think about that for a moment. And a little later on, Andronicus and Jairus, I greet you. 
Because like me, you were Jews, hardcore Jews, but you came to faith sooner than I did. And you're apostles. He gives them the title of apostles. That's a huge compliment. Perhaps even better than I am. And so here's what's going on through my head. This is heavy stuff and this is good stuff. Man, I wish I was in a Bible study with a group of Christians and could talk about that. What's that like when a giant of faith fails and sins like Abraham did? Or when you, as a giant of faith, in the eyes of your kids and grandchildren, do something despicable? What's that like? What's that like in my lifetime? Where have I missed it? Where God actually intervened like he did in the life of Abimelech and kept you from sinning? He's told you to stay away from temptations, and maybe you do a lot of that on your own. But there's been times, it would seem, where God did something directly to keep you away from sinful behavior. What would that be like to be noted as this mother of Rufus? We never know what her name is. She's a footnote in Christian history who spiritually influenced the Apostle Paul, his own self, to the degree that she calls her, or he calls her, spiritual mother. What would that be like to receive from the man who wrote the majority of the New Testament the praise of, you were Christians sooner than I was. You caught on quicker that Jesus is the Messiah, and you're my equivalent as far as being the Apostle. Wouldn't that be fun to talk about? of how we might be asterisks in history who are, by our examples and our words, raising up perhaps spiritual giants? Wouldn't that be fun to sit around a table and say to somebody, you've been like Jairus or Andronicus to me. You've been not just my equal, but you're better at this than me, and I compliment you on that. What am I saying? I'm an ecclesiologist, I'm a consultant. I've been doing this for 38 years. Starting churches, helping churches, advising churches. And I don't know much, but this much I know. When I find a church where there is a whole lot of adult Bible study going on, not just devotional study on your own at home, do that, but adult Bible study in small groups or big groups where people are giving and taking and sharing and crying and praising together, over the profound words in Scripture, here's what I find. The Sunday school called Carbon Kids and the youth group will take care of themselves. They will always be willing volunteers because people who've learned from the Scriptures are willing to help out teaching the next generation. There will always be willing volunteers for everything else because nowadays, if I've learned from the Scriptures, and value them individually, I will invest my time in that place. The money thing really will take care of itself. It will. Look me up in the old pastor's home in 10 years, and I, I, you will find this to be true. If we say as a congregation, we're going to go down the path of adult spiritual growth as the primary focus, we're going to do that collectively, the money thing will take care of itself. People put their money where they find something to be valuable spiritually. Evangelism will take care of itself. You won't have to do a lot of fancy programs. If you study the scriptures together and find that to be beneficial, you're going to invite people. And here's the biggie. There will be peace. A lot of people don't join Christian congregations nowadays because they think that they are places that are politically driven or have a lot of infighting. 
You gather around the scriptures regularly and collectively. It's not as though this will be without challenges, this raising up a church. But you will be at peace with one another. And you'll get along like brothers and sisters. Not just my promise, that's God's promise. And that's principle number one. They're liberally built on Scripture. God help us to that end.